Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 79. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you to like me on Facebook follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page, and if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. It will help spread the word and get more people interested in the show. Also, if you go to my uh, homepage, brianmcclanahan.com, remember all of these things, my name is spelled with an O, brianmcclanahan.com, you can sign up for my email list and get a free ebook and free audio book. So you might want to do that too. I do send you an email a couple times a week, sometimes more than that if I've got something else going on. And, of course, that's the way I'm going to contact you with any promotions that I have coming up, any type of deals I have with Learn True History, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. And my new forthcoming book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So going out there and do all of those things, I'd greatly appreciate it. Help spread the word. Also, you can contact me through my homepage. And if you have any show recommendations, I'd love to hear those. I do uh, read them, and uh, if there's something that I, I can do, I'll uh, try to get to it. Um, also, please don't feel uh, upset if I don't email you back right away. If you send me an email, uh, I do get a lot of emails, and I don't have time to respond to all of them. So um, I, do, uh, I do try to get back to you, but if I can't, I have read it, and uh, just want to let you know that. Okay, so today the, the, the issue I want to talk about is something that, again, has been in the news quite a lot. Uh, because of uh, Donald Trump's so-called faux pas on the issue of asking if the quote-unquote civil war was necessary. And I think it's one of the most pressing issues in American history in so many ways. Uh, And that particular issue is a question that no one really asks or they they don't ask it in the right way, and that's why slavery? Why was slavery such an important issue in American history from the colonial period to the ending of the institution in December of 1865? That's something that, again, most people don't realize. The war didn't end slavery. Slavery was still legal in the United States until December of 1865 when the 13th Amendment was ratified. So eight months after the war was over, it was still technically legal in the United States. But the question is, why slavery? Why was slavery so important moving up to the war. So if you read the pieces that have been put out recently after Donald Trump said, you know, well, we never asked this question, you know, why was the war necessary? Could it have been avoided? And everyone's, you know, went ballistic over this and saying, well, he's forgetting the the key word, slavery. And uh, I was reading a piece by Jamil Jamil Boole uh, uh, on Slate. And this is, the piece was was problematic for for one particular reason because he said it he actually admitted in the piece where he said the issue of slavery was a moral issue 
Now, it is to us today in 2017. There's no doubt about it. When we say slavery in 2017, we have uh, an important response to it. We, we, we know there are better labor institutions. We know that slavery causes all kinds of problems for humanity. We know these things. And, of course, even the slaveholders themselves, many of them, particularly in the 18th century, thought the exact same thing. They just didn't know what to do with the institution. But that's the kind of response we receive when we talk about slavery. We should not, though, confuse a 2017 response with an 1860 or an 1850 or an 1830 or 1820, 10, 1800, 1790, 1780 response. Because they're two different things. And when we ask the question, or when we say the war was, was caused by slavery, well, it wasn't really caused by slavery itself. And by saying that, what people believe is that the war was caused by a moral concern over slavery. That's the 2017 response to saying the war was caused by slavery. But that is completely incorrect. Completely incorrect. Maybe. 20%, and I'm going to be generous when I say that, 20% of the American population in 1860 had a moral aversion to the institution of slavery where it already existed. Now, the majority of Americans, when you look at population statistics, did not want slavery in their state. They did not want slavery around them. The question then becomes... Why? Why was it they didn't want slavery in their state? And why they didn't want slavery around them? But more importantly, the question becomes why slavery was actually discussed in the halls of Congress in the antebellum period. Why did this issue keep coming up? The, the important thing to, to, to say about that is it wasn't because of a moral concern about the plight of slaves in the South. Even in 1860 and 61, on the eve of the war, that was not a concern by the majority of Americans in the North. They didn't care about slavery in the South. They didn't want slavery to be extended into the Western territories. So, let's tackle this question. Because if you look at there was another piece in the Atlantic and said, well, we compromised before on the issue of slavery. We compromised in, uh, in, in 1787 when the Constitution was written. We compromised in 1820. We compromised in 1850. We compromised in 1854. And the Republican Party, some things just cannot be compromised on, and that is slavery. And when you read that, the, the individual Applebaum who wrote that piece is essentially misrepresenting the issue of slavery as some type of moral crusade by the Republican Party, or Northerners in general, against the institution. It was nothing of the kind. So let's, let's start with this Philadelphia Convention. And they did discuss slavery in the Philadelphia Convention. They did. Quite a few times, in fact. And so one of the things that came out of the Philadelphia Convention was the very famous or infamous Three-Fifths Compromise of the Constitution which allowed slaves to be counted as three-fifths of a person towards representation in Congress. Now, people will tell you, particularly people like Applebaum or James Lowen 
or uh, other pseudo-historians, they will tell you that the Three-Fifths Compromise gave the South disproportionate representation. What does that mean exactly? <clears throat> By saying the South had disproportionate representation, you're taking the northern position on the issue. And so when you go back and you read the notes of the Philadelphia Convention, it becomes very clear the North wanted to count slaves as zero towards representation in Congress. The South wanted to count slaves as one person towards representation in Congress. So what the North was doing, essentially, was dehumanizing slaves. They're saying that these people aren't people. They're not people. They're property. They're dehumanizing them. Southerners, Hugh Williamson, for example, of North Carolina, said, well, these they're rational people. They should be counted towards representation. Just like you would count women and children who can't vote, who can't participate in the polity, but they're people. Why don't we count slaves? They're people, too. They have to be taken care of. They're rational beings. They're a labor force, etc., etc. So, I mean, this is, this is his point. So, Southerners were actually humanizing slaves by asking that they be counted as a whole person towards representation in Congress, whereas Northerners were not. They were calling them chattel. And so, by saying this gave the South disproportionate representation, essentially what you are saying by that is that slaves were not people. Southerners are recognizing they were. They were people. Now, why did the South, though, want full representation for slaves in the Congress? It wasn't so they had disproportionate representation. It's so that they had proportionate representation. And the reason being is because they were very afraid about the influence the North had in the government. Why? This is the great question. Why slavery? Why was the South concerned about northern control of the general government. It came down to taxes, you see. And it's very clear when George Mason tries to get an amendment passed that would have prohibited what he called navigation laws. What were navigation laws? Navigation laws were taxes, essentially protective tariffs. What he didn't want was the South to be taxed out of existence. What Southerners did not want was the South to be taxed out of existence. That was the point. And when you go into the first Congress, one of the first direct taxes that's ever passed is a carriage tax. Now, you think, well, okay, carriage tax sounds benign. But it wasn't benign, because the only people who were going to pay the tax were Southerners because Southerners had a disproportionate number of carriages in the United States. And so the North passes a carriage tax, and the only people who are going to pay it are Southerners. So this is why they wanted, quote-unquote, disproportionate representation in Congress, because they could protect themselves from Northern taxes. That's why slavery was important. It was a political issue. And lo and behold... When the issue of the slave trade comes up in the, con in the uh, Philadelphia Convention, Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut very clearly says, I don't, I don't own slaves, I've never owned slaves, but I really don't care about slavery in the South. This is a political question. He says that openly. This is a political question. 
The morality of the institution should be left for Southerners to decide themselves or the people of the states to decide themselves. Of course, Ellsworth is from Connecticut. In Connecticut, they didn't have slavery. Now, Connecticut uh, citizens were ardent slave traders. They liked the institution of slavery enough to trade in it, but they didn't have it, at least by this point, in the state of Connecticut. Though, as we know, Massachusetts was the first state, first colony, I should say, to codify the institution of slavery, Massachusetts. There is, by the way, a, no, a wonderful website out there if you want to get a, a pretty full perspective on northern slavery. It's called slavenorth.com. And uh, it's it, the, the author of the website, it's, 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 old, it's an old website. It hasn't been updated in years. But he went out and documented all of the, uh, the complicity of the North in the institution of slavery. It's very good. Slavenorth.com. So at the Philadelphia Convention, absolutely there was a compromise. And there was a compromise because the South was concerned that they would be taxed out of existence. So there you go. So we move forward into the first government under the Constitution. And in 1794, two Northerners, Rufus King and Oliver Ellsworth, here he is again, approach John Taylor of Caroline, and they say, you know what, John, we should get out of this union. It's not working for us. Why? Because the South was controlling the government. At least that's what it was thought. Now, 1794, we've got uh, you know, George Washington into his second term. And uh, it looks like the South might control the government for the near future. Of course, John Adams wins the presidency in 1796. And you could say the North tried to put their stamp on government during his administration. just didn't last very long because Jefferson then sweeps into power in 1800, 1801. But Taylor and, uh, is shocked by Ellsworth and King saying, we should, we should get out of this union now. Again, it was a political question at that point. Why did the North want to secede? Well, because their view on government and political economy was not winning. So they wanted out of the Union. Again, this is setting the stage for what's going to happen in just a few short years when the issue of slavery is brought to the fore in the Congress for the first time. At the end of the lifespan of the founding generation. There was open discussion about northern secession in 1801 when the Essex Junto figured out that Jefferson was going to win the election. They didn't like that, so they wanted to secede. There was open discussion of secession in 1803. Now, this is an important one. 1803. Why did the North want to secede in 1803, or at least this Essex Junto? And when I talk about the North, I'm talking about the Deep North, New England. We always have the Deep South, but there's the Deep North, the upper right corner. Why would New Englanders want out of the Union in 1803? Well, because we had the Louisiana Purchase. And what kind of territory do we have there? Well, it was farmland, and all these farmers would have come into the Union. And, of course, theoretically, all these farmers would have voted for Jeffersonian Republicans, most of whom were found in the South. And so this agrarian system is going to dominate the United States. Now, there were still a large number of farmers in the North. They hadn't yet industrialized in 1803, but still... The vision of the North had become much more commercial. They didn't talk about industrialization in 1803. They talked about commercial. In fact, that term was brought up. The eastern states were more commercial, meaning that they were interested in international trade, banking, finance. That was their 
That was their political economy. And so the threat was that all these farmers would come in the Union and they're going to swing the balance of power in favor of the South forever. As Tony Soprano said, for time immemorial, it was going to be Southerners dominating the government. And so here we have this Essex Junto, people like Timothy Pickering, who at one time was Secretary of State, saying, we got to get out of this thing. This union is going to be disastrous for New England. We won't be able to survive in it. So again, as the Federal Republic develops, it becomes very clear that Southerners have an alliance, theoretically, with Westerners, with Westerners who are farmers like them. And you have a large number of farmers dumping into the Midwest, a large number of farmers dumping into the Southwest. And of course, now that you've got this Louisiana Purchase, my gosh, you've got, all, you've got a lot more farm territory out there. And hey, maybe these uh, farmers are going to vote with the Jeffersonians. Now, those farmers that went west, though, particularly in the upper, in the Midwest, you know, the, what was called the old Northwest Territory, and then who started spilling into other parts of the West, uh, they were a little different than Southerners moving across because, of course, when you look at the states of Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota, you look at that particular part of the United States, and it was organized in 1787. Uh, with slavery being prohibited from that territory. So here we had, again, Jefferson was the, was the mastermind of the Northwest Ordinance that did so. That was Thomas Jefferson. And so uh, slavery was not there. And, of course, these, these farmers moving into that territory did not bring slaves with them. However, however, the states could decide themselves. And there was actually serious discussions in Illinois, for example, and making Illinois a slave state. Uh, and people were writing about this quite, quite a lot. In fact, the, uh, there was a real possibility Illinois was going to become a slave state. And there were a lot of Southerners in southern Indiana. There were a lot of Southerners in southern Illinois, for example. And so uh, there, was, there was a possibility of Illinois becoming a slave state. And it's interesting, when Michigan was admitted to the Union, John C. Calhoun was in the Congress at the time. And he made a speech on the admission of Michigan where he said clearly, Michigan can decide for itself whether it's going to be free or slave. The states can decide for themselves. This is the exact same position the founding generation took in 1787 in Philadelphia when they said, you know, this is a political question. If the people of Michigan don't want slavery, if, they're, if they have an aversion to it, well, they don't have it. But no one else in the Union can tell them that because the Constitution would be silent on the issue of slavery. Now, again, in 2017, we think that's, that's immoral. That's wrong. There should have been some type of prohibition from the beginning on uh, expanding slavery. We should have been looking to eradicate the institution. But most Northerners were not concerned about that at all, at all. As long as it stayed in the places where it already was, as long as it didn't expand, they were fine with it. Even Abraham Lincoln took that position. So then why did slavery become so important? Again, it comes down to power. Northerners were concerned they were not going to control the government. They said as much. In private letters, in conversations with other Northerners, they were saying these things. And it becomes very clear. They let the cat out of the bag in 1815 
at the Hartford Convention. So the backdrop to that, of course, is we have the War of 1812, a war that was fought primarily in the West and the South. New England was against the war because it hurt their commercial interests. They were trading with the British, in fact, even committing treason by continuing to trade with the British during the war. And they wanted out of the Union. So a bunch of New Englanders meet in Hartford, Connecticut, and they pass a series of resolutions looking for a number of constitutional amendments that would hopefully enhance their power in the government. And when you look at this list of demands, these gentle snowflakes in New England, their list of demands, what were they? Well, first, they wanted to eliminate the three-fifths compromise of the Constitution. Why would they do that? It wasn't because they thought we should have more power, or I should say uh, we're concerned about the plight of slaves. No, no, no. They wanted to do that because they did want more power. They didn't think that uh, they had enough representation in Congress, even though they still had more. They still had more. By 1820, they had, uh, I want to say it was about 20 to 25 seats more than the South. But they want to get rid of this thing because, of course, it gave the South more power than they thought the South should have. So this is about political power. What else did they want to do? Hmm. They wanted to make it uh, a requirement that two-thirds of the Congress had to admit new states. Why would they want to do that? Well, it became very clear. These new states being admitted... In 1815, the, the fear was you'd already had Kentucky, for example, and Tennessee admitted. Well, they are southern states. The fear was we got all this Louisiana territory out there, and all these farmers are going to go out there, and they might even have slavery. And not only that, these farmers might vote with the South against the commercial interests of New England. It appeared that was the case when you had the Westerners and the Southerners in an alliance against Great Britain. Ooh, so this is about power. Oh, yeah. They also wanted the presidency to rotate. You couldn't be, uh, you couldn't have a president from Virginia consecutively. We had already had that. We had had Thomas Jefferson, then James Madison, and we'd have James Monroe behind that. And of course, George Washington from Virginia, the only Yankee that had been in office was John Adams. So they want to rotate the presidency with a one four year term, one time four year term, terminal, four years. That's it. You're out. Why would they do that? Well, very clear. They want power. They want power. Daniel Webster in 1812, the Daniel Webster that was against nullification and was this supposed union man, in 1812 made a speech where he said, you know what, if our interests are not going to be met, and of course he's talking about commercial interests at that point, we should just secede from the union. So here we have very clear evidence in 1815 that what this entire issue was about, bringing slavery to the fore, was going to be power. That's the question. Why slavery? It wasn't a moral concern. Northerners were not concerned about the plight of slaves. Southerners were. I mean, all your first abolition societies, all of your early efforts at manumission, all of these things were taking place in the South because Southerners openly talked about the problems of the institution. All of your early abolitionist newspapers were in the South. Now, of course, as we move forward in time, that shifts, and the South becomes... Uh, you know, an ardent defender of the institution. That happens, of course. One of the reasons why is because 
the attacks became personal in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. Southerners were portrayed as devils, as subhuman, and so they started becoming entrenched in rigidly defending the institution. And again, 2017, we'd look at that and say, well, that's incorrect. But it's hard to put yourself in the time and understand what's going on. So the Carford Convention lets the cat out of the bag. It's about power. Five years later, we have the Missouri issue. Actually, four years later, because Missouri was petitioning for statehood in 1819. And Northerners say, oh, no, wait a second here. You can't have another slave state. Unless you give us a free state. Well, why would they want to do that? Well, because they wanted to maintain balance of power in the Congress. Again, it's about power. So Northerners said, well, we'll give you Alabama. You give us Maine. Southern, Southerners said, no, we, we're already going to get Alabama. We want Missouri. Because Missouri gave the South a favorable balance of power, theoretically, in the Congress. And what was that power all about? Political economy. The ability to keep the North from from implementing their commercial system. So 1820, it's about power. And, it, and in fact, they were admitting this, again, in private letters, that uh, this is an issue, we're making slavery an issue in 1820 because we know, we know that can break the alliance between the West and the South. So here the West becomes important again. Westerners didn't really care for the institution of slavery not because they were concerned about the moral plight of slaves, or morally concerned about the plight of slaves, I should say, but because they were concerned about the influence of black Americans in their territory. They didn't want to compete with them for labor, for prices. They didn't, want to, they didn't even want them around at all. They were vicious racists. They all were. 99.9% .9 of Americans in 1820, 1830, 1840, and 1850 were vicious racists. 1860, they all were, north and south. And by saying this is a moral issue, you're somehow creating this uh, treasury of counterfeit virtue, that northerners were these morally good people who wanted to be around black people who thought they were great. It's just not true at all. Not true at all. And they said as much. Uh, you look at 1846, so we move forward. Missouri comes in the, in the Union as a slave state, but slavery is prohibited north of the southern border of Missouri. So 1846 rolls around. We've got this war with Mexico, a war that John C. Calhoun opposed because he could see what it would do to the Union. The man who is considered to be the defender of slavery, as Samuel Flagg Beam has called him, is now opposing the war because he knows it's going to be a disaster for the Union. Why? Because you've got David Wilmont of Pennsylvania proposing that slavery be prohibited from the territory acquired in the Mexican War. Now, why would he do this? He was very clear about it. He said, because we, Northerners, don't want to be around black people. You want to read some racist language, go read his speeches on the Wilmot Proviso. He's against slaves being in the territories because he thought they would pollute the territories. In fact, it's really interesting, as you get in the 1840s and 50s, the language used by the Republican Party, which was created in 1854, is viciously racist. They, they call the Democrats the party of miscegenation, uh, which is the mixing of the races. Uh, they didn't understand why Democrats, I mean, this was, this was the party of, of 
black people and white people together. We're the party of pure white people. This is what Republicans said in 1854 and 1855 and 1856. That idea of free soil, free free labor, free men. Eric Foner, in the only book he's ever written that was decent, was by that title on, on the origins of the Republican Party. And he exposes them for being the vicious racists that they were. Even Lincoln himself said, I have, no, uh, I have no intention of interfering with slavery where it already exists. But they didn't want slavery to extend, not because of moral concerns, but because they didn't want black people there. The 1850 Compromise. 1850 Compromise, again, is about power. Northerners were shocked this issue came up again. Why? Because they thought the issue was settled and that they would have all these new states coming in. And in fact, the interesting thing, when Colorado came in the Union, when it did after the war, it's the state that swung the vote in favor of the North in the 1876 presidential election. Their three electoral college votes gave the North the victory in that 1876 presidential election. So it was very clear that if these states come in as Northern allies, they win. This is why Henry Clay becomes so important in the early federal, I should say, in the, in the antebellum period, uh, in this middle period. Why he becomes, because Henry Clay was a Southerner, yet he believed in the same political economic system as Alexander Hamilton, which is what the North wanted. So he bridged that gap. He made the North and the West align, not the South and the West align. John C. Calhoun said as much when he said, you know what, we're in trouble if we don't start supporting some things that these Western farmers want, namely federally funded internal improvements, because they want these things. They want to get their, their product to market, and Southerners had always been opposed to them on constitutional grounds, and they were correct in that position. But Calhoun is saying, if we don't do this, we're in trouble. We're going to lose elections. The West is going to align with the North, and we're doomed. We will become a permanent minority. Our political economy will not win. So again, it's about power. Who controls the spoils of government? Who controls the political economy? So when people say it was about slavery, you have to ask the question, why slavery? What about slavery was it? You know, why was the sectional conflict about slavery? It goes all the way back to the early federal period, to the first Congress, to the Constitutional Convention. And if you read those debates, it's very clear what that issue was all about. P-O-W-E-R power, not about the plight of slaves. In 2017, we, th- we just say the term slavery, we think, oh yeah, because we're against slavery, then it's obviously a moral concern. It wasn't. It wasn't at all. And I think that's the key issue in all of this. Now, we can say that secession and the war are two different things. We could get into that topic entirely and how those were two separate, separate issues. Secession didn't have to produce war. That was Lincoln's choice. He could have compromised. There were compromises on the table that people would have supported, but Lincoln refused to support them. So when someone says, well, the war was about slavery, you can say, well, no, it really wasn't. It's about power. It's about power. That's what the war is about. Uh, When you look at Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, Stephen Douglas opened the wound again because he wanted to get a transcontinental railroad. And he wanted to be president, and he thought that if he can do this, the South would vote for him. And he'd be the next Democratic nominee for president in 1856, and all would be great, and he would be the new president of the United States. 
It didn't work out for him. But that's what he thought. That's what he thought. And, of course, 1860 rolls around. He is nominated by the Northern Democrats. But Douglas had problems because he supported what's called the Freeport Doctrine, where he said that I don't care if the Supreme Court has said that uh, popular sovereignty is unconstitutional. I still, I still support that. And so Southerners are saying, well, the courts, the courts made their ruling. You can't say that anymore. So they didn't support him. Uh, so and there was another article that brought that up. Douglas wanted to compromise. Douglas was supporting the position that Southerners have said it's it's illegal. Now again, we can argue whether that uh, decision was it was a good decision or not in terms of you know looking at what due process actually means, and did the Supreme Court step in it? Uh, but this is why Douglas was not supported. So it comes down to power. When somebody says slavery, just say, yeah, it was all about power. Well, wait a second, what do you mean? And you can explain. Tell them the cat was out of the bag in 1815. The cat was out of the bag in 1820. The cat was out of the bag, actually, and the Constitution was going through ratification. Massachusetts did, uh, they did debate in Massachusetts, do we want to be in a union with slaveholders? And it was said, you know, this is never going to affect us. We can just go on our own way here and and have our own system, our own state. The slaveholders aren't going to affect us in Massachusetts. So who cares? That was the point. Who really cares? Roger Sherman in Connecticut, Oliver Ellsworth in Connecticut. Who cares? It just stays in the South. It was all about power. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClendon.